Now, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn to the passage we read in the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 27. Just after the death of Christ in verse 54, verse 54, we read that when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, in other words, the other soldiers with him, when they saw what had happened, as well as the quake which shook the earth, they feared, feared greatly, and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now you'll remember uh, from the morning that our text doesn't, actually really come from the Gospel according to Matthew, although I'm drawing your attention to this verse particularly. Our text, morning and evening, is the famous prayer that Christ uttered from the cross, the first words that he spoke from the cross. And that prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And we saw and I hope proved that that prayer was a specific prayer for the soldiers who were nailing him to the tree. And we looked in the morning at what the soldiers actually did. Probably four soldiers as well as a centurion who was supervising the proceedings. They were the ones who were responsible for the crucifixion and they were the ones, when they had finished it, sat down and kept guard over him. And we looked in the morning at these soldiers as people who were in a lost condition and not simply lost, if you can say such a thing, but people who were very lost indeed. In other words, they were not just outside of the kingdom of God, but far from the kingdom of God. I know at one level you are either in or out. That is so true. You are either in the kingdom or not. On the other hand, the Lord himself uses the expression, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which means that some people are closer than others. And the ones who are close today may be far away tomorrow. The ones who are far away today may be close tomorrow. And the fact of the matter is that there is no salvation for any of us unless we come inside the kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the morning, I mean the morning of the crucifixion, when Christ was being tried and then crucified at nine o'clock in the morning, these four soldiers and the centurion are very far from the kingdom of God. And Christ prayed for them as a people who did not know what they were doing, didn't understand the full implications of what they were doing. 
in their treatment of the Saviour. And we saw that in the morning, how they mocked the Saviour, they physically abused him, they crucified him, they offered him a vile painkiller instead of one that was sweeter and easier to drink. They cast lots for his clothing and they nailed the accusation that was against him onto the top of the cross. And we saw the significance of all these things in the morning. How scriptures were fulfilled and how their own evil was in many ways just pouring out of them. But the story of the soldiers in the scripture is not actually a story of cruelty and brutality. At the end of the day, it is a conversion story. And it's important not to miss that. Just as we saw in the morning, the change that comes upon these soldiers when they are converted, which is, which is what happens to them, they are converted people, the change that comes upon them at this terrible hour is a reminder to us that where sin abounded so much in Calvary, sin in devils and demons and people, where sin abounded, the grace of God abounded much, much more. And even in the act of nailing him to the tree, our Lord opens his mouth for the first time. He had been led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he did not open his mouth, but he opens it in a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think that itself, well, it's a prayer that was answered, obviously. Like every prayer our Saviour ever offered, it was absolutely answered. And the fact is that a great change came over all these men in a very short space of time. At nine in the morning, they were mocking the Saviour along with everybody else, but by 3 p.m. they were changed men altogether. And, of course, it's the power of God that accomplishes that, and the power of God alone. Nothing else can really change people. People can change superficially. They can be trained from one set of habits into another set of habits, but nothing can actually change what they are in their hearts as rebellious sinners against God except the power of God itself. And when it is let loose in a life, the life of a man or a woman or a child, it is a wonderful thing to see. And anyone who knew those soldiers in the morning and knew them in the afternoon would see that there was a change upon them. Of course, they still had to grow in grace, but still that was a change. Of course, they weren't the only ones changed in that short space of time. I'm sure most of you know about one of the thieves on the cross who was crucified with Christ. He was changed too. At nine in the morning as he hung there, uh, he blasphemed the Lord and he mocked the Lord along with everybody else. But within a space of three hours, by twelve o'clock, he was a changed man. Not only that, but he had a special promise from the Lord that before that day was finished, before six o'clock in the evening would come, he would be in paradise with him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Another powerfully changed man. 
And I think it's worth saying, more or less in the passing really, that both the thief and the Roman soldiers remind us of three things in connection with the gospel of Christ. First of all, that it is a gospel for all in its breadth. It is universal. It is both for Jew and for Gentile. The thief reminds us that it was, first of all, for the Jew. He was a man, obviously, who grew up just like other Jewish boys, to know the truth, probably in his own uh, childish way, believing it. But for whatever reason, he drifted far from the faith, very, very far from the faith. And when he was crucified there, rejected by everybody, who would have thought that he would be the first trophy of grace from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think I mentioned either last Sabbath or, or the Sabbath before that, that he would have been the first soul entering glory after our Lord's own soul had entered glory. When Jesus said at the time of his death, Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. His soul rose into the presence of God. Uh, Shortly afterwards, the dying thief came too. His soul entered glory. There's something fitting in the fact that it's somebody like that that should first enter glory after the Lord's own entrance. But by the grace of God, the thief is brought to recognize the Messiah beside him. And in a way that's a remarkable thing, because he didn't look like a Messiah. It's not the kind of Messiah that any Jew expected, somebody battered and bloodied and bruised beyond all recognition, hanging crucified and cursed. But the Spirit of the Lord impressed certain scripture truths upon that thief, and he was powerfully converted. The gospel is for the Jew, but of course The gospel is also for the Gentiles. Other sheep I have, Jesus says, who are not of this Israelite fold. These sheep are scattered in all nations, but them also I must bring. And these four coarsened, hardened to some extent soldiers around the cross are an evidence of that. That the Lord is bringing the Gentiles into his kingdom too. So the cross is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. So irrespective of your upbringing, your background, or who you are, the gospel is for you too. It reminds us also that the gospel is for everyone in terms of its depth, in the sense that it reaches very, very low. Because the thief and the Roman soldiers could all be classed as among chiefs of sinners. People who are really far gone along the path of sin and rejection of the gospel. And uh, Paul described himself like that, as a chief among sinners. And some of you may have been like that too. And you can look back over a life, um, a life that perhaps was so bad at some point that you are amazed that God actually had to do with you. And for all I know, though you're here tonight, your own path could be going down that road. But this is a reminder to you that the gospel of God is for you too. 
And however bad the thoughts that you may have, or the intentions or the plans that you may have, or even the choices that you've made, the gospel is still for you. The thief on the cross and four Roman soldiers remind us that on the cross Christ was reaching down deep to find sinners, even the chiefs of sinners. I think the thief and the soldiers also remind us that conversions can sometimes be very quick. Uh, Many of us have become used to conversions being very gradual, and sometimes when you hear people telling of how they came to know the Lord, it is increasingly common for people to say that they are not sure really when they passed from death to life, that it was a process that took perhaps, as far as they could see, weeks, months, perhaps even years. But that shouldn't blind us to the fact that the Lord can quickly change people and quickly change people who are far gone into being trophies of grace just in a moment of time. Like I say, between 9 and 12 for the thief, between 9 and 3 p.m. for the soldiers. And between our call to worship here at the beginning of the service and the pronouncing of the benediction at its close, it is not impossible It is far from impossible that the Lord would take yourself and turn your heart and change you from a disobedient, willful sinner determined to live life your way to someone who gladly bows the knee before a Lord and a Saviour in confession and repentance and in new life. That is not beyond the power of God. It is what God delights to do. So conversions can be quick swift, as well as being gradual over a period of time. Now, most of us know, if, if we know the gospel, well, let's say very well, we will know that Christ's death greatly affected the Roman centurion, who was in charge of the crucifixion. A centurion, as his title tells you, is responsible for a hundred soldiers. And He spoke immediately after Christ's death on the cross and it's Luke's account of his words that seem to uh, have caught hold of people and people seem to remember best. Because Luke tells us that when Jesus dismissed his spirit in death that the centurion said, certainly this was a righteous man. Certainly this was a righteous man. Now very often these words are interpreted in what I would say is a very minimalistic way. In other words, they're interpreted as though all the centurion was saying is that the man who hung there was actually innocent. That he was not guilty of the crimes of which he had been accused that listening to him and looking at him, he he was convinced that he was just not like other people who were being crucified, and how true that was, and how right it would be to come to a conclusion just like that. But friends, there's far, far more to what the centurion says than that. The centurion isn't just making a statement about Christ's guilt or innocence. 
With God's help, let's look a little more closely at what the centurion said. In fact, what all the soldiers said and what it really meant. What was it that they said? Well, according to Luke, the centurion said, certainly this was a righteous man. But according to Mark, the centurion says, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, just like I said in the morning, things that people pick up as being contradictions, of course they're not. If you're to ask, well, which did he say? The answer is both. Both. And in all probability, he said, first of all, that he was a righteous man. And he immediately followed it by saying, truly, this was the Son of God. It's as though the centurion himself is telling us not to empty his words of their meaning, but to make sure that we fully understand what he wants us to hear. Not only is this man innocent, but this man is a son of God, or the son of God. And again, it's important to notice that according to Matthew, he's not the only one who said that. Look at Matthew carefully in verse 54. Matthew 27, 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, in other words, they all saw it, and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, plural, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. They all came to that conclusion. Not just the centurion, but the rest of the soldiers. This was the Son of God. Now, when I'm warning against stripping these statements of their meaning... It's possible even to do it with this one. In other words, you would say something like, well, this man was innocent. In fact, he was almost godlike and majestic and regal in his behavior. No, they mean more than that. In fact, they mean precisely what they say. Very often when people interpret it like that, they interpret it like that because they say, well, come on, what, what could Roman soldiers know? I mean, how, how could they just appear from nowhere and make a confession like this as to who this man was? They're nobodies, knowing nothing. Well, they're not nobodies. And it's wrong to conclude that they know nothing. Who says they know nothing? These Romans were living in the Holy Land and in all probability had lived in it for many years. There were plenty of other Roman soldiers in Judea, and some of them were Christians. In fact, there were other centurions who were Christians. That's often forgotten. Cornelius, who was stationed in Caesarea, was a believer. He was a believer in God, worshipping in the synagogues, and giving tithes of what he possessed. Every centurion in Judea knew each other, make no mistake. 
And this centurion would know the witness and life of Cornelius. There's another centurion too that comes before us during the ministry of Christ. You remember the one in Capernaum whose servant was lying critically ill and he sent the Jewish elders to go to ask if Jesus would come and heal his son. How often in the Bible there are people concerned about their families and sometimes they need healing themselves first. But this is not one of them. Uh, The Jewish elders came to Christ and said, he's a Roman centurion, but he deserves this. He loves our nation. What's more, out of his own expenses, he has built us the great synagogue in Capernaum. So he loved the worship of God. And he loved the people of God. I mean, sometimes you think of the first century AD and you think the place is full of Pharisees. Well, there are plenty of Pharisees, but there were plenty of God's people living their ordinary, God-fearing, consistent lives. And they made an impression even on the Roman soldiers there. And when Christ came to the house, when he was approaching the house of the Roman centurion, the centurion sent out servants to say, Please, Lord, don't come under my roof. Because I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. I know who you are. And I know who I am. Don't come under my roof as a sinner. But just speak. Say the words. And I know that my servant will be healed. And we're told that the Lord turned around and looked at the people and said. I have not found faith like the faith of this man in all of Israel. So there's a Roman soldier there, a centurion in charge of a hundred in Capernaum, who has a greater faith than the rest of the Israelites. So how dare we say that this man in charge of the crucifixion knows nothing? He too knows of the life of the people of God. And he too has seen change in the life of people that he has fought with and worked with. So on what basis do we say that he knows nothing? Of course he does. And the Lord sees to that. The Lord has ways of giving us a background and taking us bit by bit into a place where we are ready to come into the kingdom. And maybe that has taken part in your life. Maybe, maybe you've moved from a position of being miles away, uninterested, careless, and, and you've moved along from that. And you're not in the kingdom, but neither are you where you were. By the grace of God, may you come to be where you haven't been yet. And that is safe inside the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, little do we know what can be deep in a person's heart. I mentioned in the morning that these soldiers abused and mocked the Saviour. Yes, they did. And they did it along with others in the garrison because the garrison were involved. But you know, you can, you can see people act out a certain kind of behavior. It doesn't mean that you know exactly what's going on in their hearts. Because people do in a crowd what they don't do on their own. I mean, we've all seen that. Maybe we know that. We've done in a crowd what we would never have done on our own. Maybe that was a practice. That's how they possibly dealt with people. In all probability it was. People were being crucified. But there were in their hearts, there were different things. 
different thoughts and different experiences. They weren't yet coming to the fore because it wasn't the Lord's time. But in the Lord's time, even that day, they would come to the fore. So let's not assume they're ignorant, these people, when they make this confession about Jesus being the Son of God. The second thing that tells us how we should interpret that confession is the fact that Luke tells us that when the centurion said this, that he glorified God in doing so. Now how careful the Spirit is to bring that before us. The centurion glorified God and said, certainly this was a righteous man. Now, he doesn't mean by that that he's unintentionally glorifying God or unintelligently glorifying God or just happens to glorify God by what he says. Luke means more than that. Luke means that he gave glory to God and said, certainly this is a righteous man. In other words, the centurion was deliberately and spiritually speaking his conviction in connection with what he had seen and heard. Let me give glory to God by saying that this man was a righteous man. Let me give glory to God by saying that this is his son. And the soldiers were in agreement with that too. And of course, he doesn't just say a righteous man, but the Son of God. Where does he get that from? Where does he get the idea of God having a Son and the Son of God coming into this world? Well, he had heard it used often enough earlier that day. When the centurion and the soldiers were in the judgment hall, when Pilate was judging Christ, And like I said in the morning, we're always judging Christ when he's actually judging us. But anyway, when Pilate was judging Christ and when the trial was perhaps nearly halfway through and the Jews felt that the trial was going to go against them, they said that he makes himself to be the son of God, desperately trying to find accusations that would carry weight with the Roman governor. But when Pilate heard the accusation, the Son of God, we're told that he was actually afraid. He was afraid. There were lots of things about Christ that were making Pilate afraid. This is a man who wasn't normally afraid. He could deal with convicted Jews day in, day out without batting an eyelid. But there was something about this man from the moment that he first appeared before him that wasn't so easy to dismiss or to shake off. And when he heard that he claimed to be the Son of God, he didn't dismiss him as a fanatic. He went inside and said, where are you from? It's as though he's giving a measure of credibility to it. And what could have led him giving a measure of credibility to it, except the fact that it was credible? There was something about the man's bearing and his dignity. When he spoke and when he didn't speak, everything that carried Another worldliness about him. Someone from another country. Someone from another dimension altogether. And there is a testimony to Pilate's conscience that the man in front of him is indeed the truth. When Jesus spoke to him of the truth, Pilate famously answered, What is truth? And he breezed his way past him. 
What is truth? Absolutely. It's an interesting expression that the, that the Latin for what is truth, quid est veritas, is an anagram of the answer which I've forgotten. Uh, it is the man standing before you. If you simply rearrange the letters of quid as est veritas, it becomes ver something or other, I can't remember it, but it's an anagram of the man standing before you. The sad thing was that Pilate asked the question but didn't stay for an answer. It's always a mistake to ask questions about Christ without waiting for proper answers. Had Pilate waited for an answer, he'd have got one. And maybe the day would have ended very, very differently. But the centurion heard his claim to be the Son of God. And the passers-by too, when they were passing by the cross, they just turned up and looked up and said, if you're the Son of God, come down and save yourself. Here's the expression again, the Son of God. What a powerful testimony that actually is. Is he really the Son of God? And then again, there was the extraordinary way in which they heard Christ pray. Father, he said. Father. When he prayed for themselves, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in the act of dismissing his spirit to God, Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. Not so much you taking it from me, but Father, I commit it into your hands. So his claim to be the Son of God is staring them in the face or it's in their ears all day long. And it's in the light of that that we interpret the expression that the centurion makes and the soldier certainly, truly, this is the Son of God. It's not for us to go away and try and imagine what they meant by it. Let the scripture tell you what they mean by it. Let the words that they heard that morning and the evidences that they saw, let these inform you as to what they meant when they said, certainly this was the Son of God. They meant it. They meant it as being the son of the one true and living God that they had heard of and seen testified to. They watched this man. They watched him from morning and then watched him to the afternoon. And that was their conclusion. So in a way, as the day unfolds, you could say that the question before them was, what do you think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? That's the question before you tonight as well, before me. It's always before us. What do you think of Christ and whose son is he? If he wasn't the son of God, who actually was he? Just a misguided person. A hopelessly misguided person who thought himself to be divine when he was just human. People like that tend not to influence a whole world for 2,000 years. Is it not possible that you just haven't listened closely enough to him to realize that he is exactly who he claims to be? That's the great realization that we need to come to. The great realization that we need to come to 
that he is exactly who he claimed to be the son of the living God now if they changed from mockers to worshippers in the space of six hours it's fair to ask what means did God use it's a fair question because God always uses means he uses things and events and words to bring about a change in a person's heart well again no need to speculate just listen to the Bible Matthew tells us that when they saw the quake and the things that had happened they said truly this was the son of God Mark tells us that when they saw how he cried out at the point of his death and breathed his last they said truly this was the son of God in other words very simply God used what they saw and heard as they sat and watched him there God will use too the things that you see and hear sometimes as you sit there listening to the gospel he'll use things that you hear now or have heard recently or even way back in the past things that have happened in your life and providences he'll use the things you see and hear in order to bring you from death to life let me just highlight quickly six of them these are not six points in a long sermon these are six things that we're all to take to heart they first noticed his dignity I mentioned that in the morning I don't really need to linger much on it tonight how different he was from every other person who was ever crucified during his trial on the way to the crucifixion and on the cross itself when he opened not his mouth no one was ever crucified like this man it's a dignity an authority a serenity calmness a majesty a kingliness in his bearing when he was being treated like scum the second thing they noticed was his prayer his first prayer the first word from the cross and it was for them as they drove the nails into his hands and into his feet they heard the first words father forgive them for they know not what to what they do they know not what they do even for the even for what they are doing to him he asks forgiveness a forgiveness that he knows his father will give in other words he loves them and he cares for them it's really tough to get to that place it's the grace of god alone that brings you to such a place it's while we were yet sinners that christ died for us and uh, how evident the ugliness of that sin is in the act of nailing him to the tree and out comes the prayer for pardon and for forgiveness i think they know by this time that he's not a criminal by 9 o'clock in the morning they know there's something going on that they don't understand but they know he's not a criminal but the prayer awed them as it also sells to it also to hear father 
forgive them, for they know not what they do. The third thing that the Lord used surely in their lives was his authoritative and compassionate words to the man who hung beside him. Because the centurion who we're told stood opposite the cross, just right opposite it, guarding it, he heard the thief at the side turning round, the man who had been blaspheming at nine o'clock in the morning, he heard him at twelve o'clock say, Lord, remember me when you come literally in your kingdom, in its glory and in its power. And the Lord in his great weakness and in his distress turns round and says, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Remarkable words. Words that convey authority, certainty, power, compassion, divine power. They could easily have wondered, who is this man? who forgives sin? Who is this man who can say to a a rebel and a a man who has died like this that he's going to inherit the kingdom of heaven before the day is finished? Well, who indeed? Who indeed? The fourth thing that the Lord used in their lives, something they saw and heard, in this case saw, was the strange darkness that came over the land at noon. At twelve o'clock, when the sun is in its zenith, in a blaze of glory. There's a gloom across the land. It's not a thick darkness because we're told later that it became darker still. But from 12 noon, it was dark. One of these strange, eerie darknesses. Uh, Just when you... I mean, imagine yourself just now at 12 o'clock and it's a bright, sunny day and suddenly there's a gloom over the whole land in the middle of summer and in the middle of the day. How much more in that land where the sun blazed all the time. What could it signify? Well, what indeed? I suppose for the Jews it was just a sign that this man was a a thief and a robber after all. This man was cursed and he was in the dark because God was plunging him into the dark. You see, when you don't want to believe, you won't believe anyway. It doesn't matter what sign you see or what evidence God gives you, you'll misinterpret the sign, you'll misinterpret the evidence. And... You'll do your darndest to ignore it. I was talking to a brother today about the time when they, when they came to arrest Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus famously asked them, the, the large group that came to arrest him, who do you look for? Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he, or just literally and simply in the Greek, I am It is I, but I am the great divine name. John tells us that they all fell backwards. I mean, here's a group of people arresting Christ and they fell backwards because there was just some release of power accompanying the Lord's use of the divine name. And we're told that they picked themselves up and continued with the arrest. (laughs) It's absolutely remarkable. That a people who are struck by the power of God can get up as though nothing happened. But yet we can do it ourselves. God can communicate with us, change perhaps a life that we've known and loved very well, clearly from darkness to life. And we get up the following day and we go to work 
as though nothing happened, as though we saw nothing different and heard nothing different. Because when we're determined so to do, we're determined so to do. For them, the darkness meant something different. Again, there was the strength that the Lord showed when he lifted up his head from a position of excessive weakness and shouted, it is finished, and then shouted, into your hands I dismiss my spirit. Mark tells us that when the centurion saw how he cried out these words and breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Last of all, of course, as Matthew tells us, they saw the quake. Because at the very point of Jesus' death, the Lord saw fit to shake the earth. And how fitting it was to shake the earth. This is what you call an earth-shaking event. It really is. And it's no surprise that the earth shook. But it shook with a purpose. We're told it split the earth. It split the rocks in the very vicinity where they were. Rocks that were to release people in graves in a very short period. But they saw the quake. They heard the quake and its effects. That's enough to convert any soul, you'd say. Well, as I said in a minute, many people left Golgotha the way they went there. They went there sinners, they left sinners. Why the difference in the Roman soldiers? Well, at one level you could say that their hearts weren't so closed, their hearts weren't as full of hatred as the people who were determined to have Christ dead, because there were some there who were determined to have Christ dead. Absolutely so. Um, when Pilate offered to release him, no, they preferred Barabbas, who was just a notorious criminal. Pilate wanted to release Christ, and he thought that by scourging him and leaving him bloodied and battered from head to foot, that that would satiate their thirst for blood. It didn't. It only just stirred it up further. They wanted him dead. They hated him, yes. Was that the difference? Some so hard, others not so hard. Not really. At the end of the day, the difference is... Christ's prayer. That's always what makes a difference. The fact is that the Lord Jesus prayed for these soldiers and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, it's a wonderful place to be inside Christ's prayer. Wonderful to be in the Lord's intercession. If you're a Christian here tonight, you know that the Lord prays for you. You know that when you sin and confess your sins, he takes your confession and presents it before the Father. You know that when you ask that he make you holy as he is holy, that he presents that request before the Father and he answers it. A wonderful place to be inside Christ's intercession. Uh, on the evening in which Christ was betrayed, you will all know that Peter fell and he fell tragically. He denied ever knowing the Lord, and he did so with oaths and with curses, because he was that afraid of death himself. And he went out that night and he wept bitterly. 
What stopped him from being a Judas? What stopped him from ending it all when he went out that night and wept? It's very simple. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you to sift you as wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. There's your answer right there. That's what upheld Peter. The intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that powerful saving intercession that means that these soldiers don't leave Golgotha like the rest. They leave Golgotha a changed man. How do you know if you have a place in that intercession? By believing the gospel. You can't put anything before faith. Faith is everything. Faith is everything. Only by believing what you're told regarding Christ and the gospel, only by embracing it will you know that you're in that intercession. Because if you believe it, you're in it. Absolutely, you are in it. And your faith is the very evidence of that. These men changed by the power of the cross or by the power of Christ on the cross. Now, of course, Christ is no longer on the cross. He is in glory, but he still draws us through the cross. It's to him crucified that you look. He's there for sinners like you and like me. Faith means that we are in him and safe for time and for eternity. And like the soldiers, your sins will be forgiven too. May you know that portion. Even in the twinkling of an eye, as the soldiers knew it. Let us stand to pray. (laughs) Eternal God, we bless you for the power that transforms people and uh, brings them from the darkness of ignorance and unbelief and disobedience into the light of knowledge and obedience and faith. And we pray tonight if there is even one here amongst us who is still in that darkness that you would bring them to the light. We cannot be judges of one another. The Lord knows the hearts of all who are present here tonight. But we have come to know and taste that this power is yours and that you are well able to even convert the chief among sinners. So, Lord, work in us and work in our families too. There are those whom we bring before you who have, like the thief on the cross, wandered from the truth. There are others like the soldiers who have perhaps not known it so well. But we pray that you would have mercy upon them, that they would seek you while you are to be found and call upon you while you are near because you are as near as the preaching of the word is to us, even this evening. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, Let's sing in conclusion from God's word in Psalm 113.
at verse 5. Psalm 113 at verse 5. Unto the Lord, O God, that dwells on high, who can compare? Himself that humbleth, things to see in heaven and earth that are. And of course, uh, the humiliation in God meant that he reached down to Calvary, humbling himself there. Why? Well, so that from the dust he doth raise the poor, that very low doth lie, and from the dunghill lifts the man oppressed with poverty, that's where he finds us and here's where he takes us, that he may highly him advance, and with the princes said, with those that of his people are the chief, even princes great. The barren woman house to keep he makes, and to be of sons, a mother full of joy. Sometimes a woman can have a spiritual family even if she's denied an ordinary family. And the psalm closes as it began. Praise to the Lord, give ye. These last four stanzas, let's stand and sing them.